warm welcome to you all. Hope you'll thoroughly enjoy our program. Britannia, a very British podcast about very British movies with just a hint of professionalism. Well, there they go, can't even say professionalism <laughs> once again. Every time. Good morning, Stephen. Good morning, Matt. <laughs> just act professional at all times, even if you're not. Every intro that I've done for this and other shows, I stumble at the first hurdle. I can't even name the show or get my own name out. Hint of professionalism. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> been a few weeks how are we doing all okay yeah things are good yeah how about yourself fine absolutely fine um gearing up towards christmas we've had you know halloween episodes out of the way now we're going to try and squeeze in a few more before we decide what we're going to do as a, a festive edition um yep. tony is hopefully going to join us for whatever we decide to do on that oh, partic- yeah on that particular episode when he found out what we're talking about this morning he was absolutely gutted. Um, oh. And I did say to him, you are more than welcome to to come along. He said, I can't make it. I cannot oh. actually be there. And I thought that would have been an ideal one that, you know, a movie that three of us have got something to say about rather than the two. Absolutely, yeah. But great I've opportunity. But uh, yeah. Maybe you can send a clip in or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but, but there'll uh, be more. There'll be more opportunities, you know. Like we've said, there's there's... 10,000 British movies we can talk about quite easily and and I'm sure there'll be one that all three of us are going to get together on more than more than on one occasion so bearing that in mind my friend it was your choice for this episode and what what have you selected and why Uh, selected uh, Quadrophenia the film that that takes the Who album um, and turns it into uh, a gritty um, teen angst um film uh it's something that i picked up on early in in life uh i was around when there was the second sort of mod revival in the 80s yeah um, particularly with although i was slightly younger my sort of friends older brothers had their scooters and their parkers and, and such like so that was aspirational at that point because you obviously you look up to sort of the kids a couple of years older than you yeah and obviously the who and the jam and all the music at the time that sort of captured me and watching quadrophenia at the earlier stage that i could I, for some reason i thought it was a 15 so maybe it, i don't know why i managed to watch it at the age i did but as we know quite often me and you have, have watched things <laughs> at an earlier age than maybe we should have done um but it just stuck with me and it's something i've gone back to um you know at least once a year and um it I don't know exactly why. Maybe uh, in my own life, I'm not known for being a conformist. So maybe 
this has appealed in that respect as well that I, I still refuse to to conform completely but it stuck with me yeah okay. and um it still amazes me all the young faces of people who went on to all sorts of things in it as well which is an element we often pick up on in films so cool hold that thought we'll take a quick break we'll be back just after this Quadrophenia certainly deserves its place here on the Real Britannia podcast, for there's one thing that you certainly cannot deny, this film is so very British. Not perhaps in the way that we may look at, say, the Ealing comedies or the lavish Powell and Pressburger productions, but in a manner that's almost unique. It's a snapshot of a certain aspect of life for British kids growing up in the 1960s. These kids were born not during the war, but a couple of years after still having to grow up through the rationing that was still evident throughout the 50s, but fortunate enough, in their eyes, to miss out on having to go through national service. Not every teenager in 1965 was a mod or a rocker, and thanks to Quadrophenia, we get a glimpse into this very specific part of British teenage life. A teenage life that revolves around R&B music, the music of The Who and The Kinks, and of Northern Soul. Actually, when you think about it, we only really get an insight into the world of the mods. The rockers are just portrayed here as their bitter enemies and rivals. The only glimpse of the rockers' world is represented all too briefly in this movie by Ray Winston. The movie itself hit the screens following the death of punk music in the UK, and although representing an era that would be far more familiar to our parents, it was like a breath of fresh air. The movie was released at just the right time, heralding in a revival of the mod, mod culture and the music, and it can certainly be said that the film is truly iconic. The film portrays an era of angry young men, pills, violence and of course music. Punctuated by a soundtrack provided by The Who, it captures the ever familiar struggle of kids and their identity and the choice of remaining an individual or fitting in with a crowd. Loosely based on The Who's 1973 rock opera of the same name, Quadrophenia marked the debut of director Frank Rodham. It tells the story of Jimmy, portrayed here in a career-defining performance by Phil Daniels. By day, Jimmy works in a dead-end job as a mailroom boy, but at night he is a mod. Spending his evenings getting high on speed, dancing, partying and chatting up the birds, with the occasional run-in or a punch-up with the rockers. The highlight of the movie is the recreation of one of the seaside brawls that were widely reported at the time, usually taking place over the bank holiday weekend. We witness Jimmy's life slowly spiral out of control following his arrest. His depression builds up throughout the movie following arguments with his parents, his patchy love life and his self-destructive personality. As I said at the beginning, this is a very British movie. Look out for early performances from Ray Winston, Timothy Spall and Phil Davis, and not forgetting a young Toya Wilcox and, of course, Sting. A superb movie that captures the generation with precise detail, all held together by a flawless performance from Phil Daniels. Here's the trailer.
down then, are you? What do you mean, going to be? I am one of the faces. Apart from brightness, I was a mud there. You know? You're barmy, that's what you are, staying out all hours. Getting up to God knows what, dressing up like a bloody freak. If the year is the same, and I feel it again, I'll lose her. Wouldn't be at all surprised if you're not on drugs. Yeah, yeah I know what you get up to down that club, you and your mates. Your gang, you've got to be part of a gang, haven't you? Hey, you've got to be a mod or this or that. I mean, haven't you got a mind of your own? I'll tell you what's wrong with you. You're schizophrenic, that's what you are. There's somebody like you who doesn't know whether his mind's over here or over there. Bloody split personality. Fuck off! Leave that alone! Get off me! Well, that isn't it, is it? I mean, it isn't the bikes, is it? It's the people. I don't give a monkey's assholes about mods and rockers. Underneath we're all the same, aren't we? Well, I don't want to be the same as everybody else. That's why I'm a mod, see? I mean, you got to be somebody, ain't you? Or you might as well jump in the sea and drown. Take it or leave it, me son. Take it or leave it. Quadrophenia. Released on the 2nd of November 1979 in the USA. I can't find the UK release date off the top of my head here at the moment, so it's going to be around about the same time. Directed by Frank Rodham. Starring Phil Daniels, Leslie Ash. Here's some of these names that you said went on to other things or are more familiar. Phil Davis, Mark Wingett, Sting. Ray Winston is in here. Gary Shale, Toya Wilcox, the superb husband and wife team here of Michael Elphick and Kate Williams, Daniel Peacock, that we're going to find more. I think Timothy Spall was a little role in here as well. The storyline, very basically, is London, 1964. Like many other youths, Jimmy hates the Philistine life, especially his parents and his job in a company's mailing division. Only when he's together with his friends, the mod click, cruising London on his motor scooter and hearing music such as the Who and the High Numbers, does he feel free and accepted. However, it's a flight into an illusionary world. That's a bizarre synopsis there I've just read. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I can 
I can when you know the film, you can see why somebody might have said that. But mm. I think if you don't know the film, it's a bit misleading in in some respects. Some yeah. of that, but still, it's um, it's a great little shot of what 1964 was all about for British youth. It's a great example of a late 70s British movie. And as you said, there are a lot of people here that would go on to not necessarily better things, but certainly more familiar things that we, you know, these, these guys, there were kids, a lot of these, you know, actors and actors, actors and actresses in this movie. And, and they've matured into other roles, but you, you love this film. You've seen it a fair few times. I take it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I probably, I know, I must have seen it at least, you know, 30 or 40 times, oh I imagine. Okay. okay. Um, it's probably one of the films I've seen most often because um, in my younger days when, you know, you only had a handful of VHSs, it was one of the ones that I put on repeatedly. It was oh. same with the um, the young ones, not the Cliff Richard film, but the yeah. actual TV series uh, with uh, Rick Mail and such. Yeah. Um, that was, you know, put on repeat, you know, <laughs> watch, watch that once a month sort of thing because there was, you know, a limited amount of other things to watch and yeah. it was something that I enjoyed so the same with this I think uh, the amount of times I've watched it you know on VHS and then on DVD is um is high up there with anything else I may have seen to wow. be honest now surprisingly for somebody like myself that is a massive fan of 60s music 60s culture you know the whole Rainbow Valley podcast is sort of testament to that I've only seen this about three or four times I love the film, but I'm, I'm not a massive fan of it as you obviously are. But I do, I do enjoy the movie. And watching it last night, I think it was my best viewing experience of it. I sat here and I just got totally absorbed into it. And I saw a lot more in this movie this time round that I hadn't seen previously. I appreciated a lot more this time round as well. I quite enjoyed it, mate. I'm I'm a bit of a fan. I think I've become more of a fan since last night than I was previously. I sort of I didn't dismiss it previously. It was just a film that I'd, I'd seen a few times and, and enjoyed. You know, I think maybe the thing is we've both found throughout the years of watching films for review on a podcast um, gives us more of a critical eye, and sometimes that means we watch things that we've enjoyed previously, and then we watch it with that critical eye in order to review it, and have gone. <sighs> actually it's got some bits that are stinkers in it and then yeah. there's other ones like this that other it's not perfect film there are bits in it that that are a bit a bit dodgy in bits but um watching this with a critical eye last night and in preparation for today um that may may have actually tipped the balance for you and i can understand why you might be saying that now that it, you, you're appreciating it on a different level to what your casual viewings previously were yeah um this time round, i mean i've, I've watched it on blu-ray i've had the blu-ray probably about a year and a half two years sitting on the shelf i had to you know take the plastic off of it last night because i say it's just there and it's just it's always been in my collection on like you say on vhs and dvd over the years i may even have had a copy recorded off the tv at one point onto an old you know blank vhs tape yeah and i just thought as i was replacing DVDs and VHSs. I thought, no, I'd like a copy of that. And it was fairly cheap. And I bought it a couple of years ago. And it's just sat there amongst, you know, the dozens and dozens of Blu-rays sitting on my shelf. And I've never found the time where, you know, I think, you know what, I fancy watching that. So having to sit down last night because of what we're doing today, 
I thought, no, I'm in the mood for this, actually. So, you know, got myself a little drink. And and as soon as those opening credits kicked in with Phil Daniels on the scooter, I thought, I'm going to enjoy this. You know, it's a Blu-ray quality. The sound was fairly good. It was it, it was just a, a perfect viewing of it for me, you know. The only thing missing, I wasn't sitting in my parker, you know. That's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Surrounded by a load of mirrors. Yeah, yeah. basically. <laughs> Funny enough, there's a there's a documentary which I caught about five ten minutes of at the end of the Blu-ray, and the director Frank Rodham says that if he could change one thing, because he he was fine with the whole movie, he said if I could change one thing, he said, would be we could have had more money for the opening credit sequence. He said I don't like that garish yellow font that we use. He said we could have used the the round, you know, the round or the target round, or and had yeah. a bit of graphics in there and just made it a bit more fancy. He said. But I like that opening sequence. I just thought, well, that just looks like a 70s British film before you even, you know, get stuck into I, it. I think that there was there was a restricted budget on this. I mean, obviously, they did spend money on it, but yeah. I think they were, they were trying to keep the budget from spiralling out of control. And I think there's a lot of cases where they did cut um, cut on potential spending, um, such as, you know, apparently not getting permission for filming on for road closures and just going down there and keeping an eye out for the police and such like but um i think that maybe that rawness of the opening i think plays well into the actual subject matter of the film and the style of the film anyway yeah yeah you you instantly know that right we've got a movie here that's going to be about youth culture coming of age we've said this a fair few times about films it's a coming of age film but it's it's done in such a great way. I mean, we were just that little bit too young to see this, you know, this actual part of history, this mid sixties, which is you know my favourite time in 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 history in, in UK mm. history with regard to music and fashion and stuff like that. We were lucky to see the second wave of the mod revival, like you say, but instantly you think, okay, they've taken their time to actually recreate this perfectly we say this all the time about all the shops are you know look at some of the old shops that are in the in the background there's a there's a wimpy a wimpy makes another appearance yeah. <laughs> um, is that going to go in the village hall of fame wimpy? it will be that's his second appearance in a couple of episodes so we're looking out for another wimpy bar um but i was i was being a bit picky because there's a scene in um in the scrapyard where phil daniels has bunked off work and he goes to the scrapyard to see leslie ash's boyfriend and I'm thinking, how accurate have they made this? And I was looking at some of the scrapped cars in the background, but they were all period cars. There wasn't a new one sort of tucked in there. You know, they'd really gone to to make the effort to. It's it's the 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 ones in the street where they didn't get permission to film, where they've just gone quick. Let's get down yeah. the street, and they've done their best to try and not include close shots of the cars that are out of out of sync. And, yeah. And, didn't notice um, it though. Didn't notice it to be no, honest. No, you wouldn't do unless you unless you are somebody who's particularly picky about that. You you wouldn't go and and, and pick at that. Same as you know, why would why would you want to go and pick about the fact that when they arrive in Brighton and they're overlooking Brighton, it's not. It's actually Eastbourne. Uh, yes. Yeah, I thought that because I thought that isn't Brighton. I didn't. I didn't know it was Eastbourne, but I knew it wasn't Brighton. Well, I know Eastbourne quite well from going down to the Union courses down there a couple <laughs> of times a year, and I just and and this is actually previously. I've not noticed it, but this time around I went, sure, that's Eastbourne. I went and looked it up and it was. But yeah, um, well, yeah I hadn't noticed before. I just uh, accepted it was just a good shot that they've got iconic-wise of them looking down where they were about to arrive. And yeah. um, it was Brighton. But 
it's not it's not, not that, right not there's no yeah the, the pickiness is that in there the, the the rawness that there is even though they've they've done the best to make sure that a lot of the um a lot of the the you know that even down to the pinball machines used and the um the way that people are dressed and you've got in the um even the tins in the supermarket where Leslie Ash is working, it's yeah. all period sort of like, you know, props. It's, it's all there, you know. The, yeah. The, 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 the record players. We had one of those record players at home where you stack up the seven-inch singles and they drop down once once finished playing, you know. Um, or radiograms, as they were called back then. Yeah. You know. And the listening booths. Um, oh, the, the thing that got me as well, the baths, public baths. I mean. Yes. I I was lucky enough, you know. We're we're a generation where an inside bathroom and an inside toilet is considered the norm, but up to you know my early years, my family were living in houses that had outside toilets, and you'd have to go down to the to slipper baths to have a a bath on a Sunday or, or the weekend. You know, it was, it oh, I had relatives who who had outdoor toilets, and, and you know my my own family home was just past that you know stage. Yeah. It was a newer build, but um, yeah, I had I. Had, family who were in in houses that had outside toilets and um no no actual bath as you say that you had to you know yeah. it was still just a little bit past the stage of what was happening in kez where you know. exactly exactly and it's yeah. it the thing that it, it just the thing that struck me this time is, is this whole ritual of um working monday to friday in, in a job that he doesn't particularly enjoy yeah. and as as teenagers, you must have had this feeling. I still get it on a Friday. Looking forward to that Friday night, finishing work. The weekend starts here. Even though you now me and you might not particularly be doing anything wild and you know outrageous at a weekend, <laughs> but for him it was like right Friday. I've got to go. You know, have me bath. I've got to go and get me haircut. I've got to go and pay off me suit. You know, is and it's meet me friends in the pub on a Friday night. And it's all these things that I remember as a kid myself, as a teenager that your whole life revolved around that five o'clock Friday evening to nine o'clock Sunday night. That, yeah. That was your and time. That's it. I mean, I, and I remember the sort of staying out till stupid o'clock and then going to work the next day and going, Oh fuck, I shouldn't have done that. You know? Yeah. Um, and the older people, their, their reaction to that, that you're burning the candle at both ends yeah. and, and stuff. You're thinking, Oh, um, so yeah, we can identify it on on that you level say, as well as every every other as well. Yeah, you saying about staying out till stupid o'clock and the thing that <laughs> that made me chuckle. They're in the pub, and someone said, "Oh, there's a party over at so and so road." Okay, yeah, we, we used to do that because you know pubs shut at eleven o'clock and it was yeah. who's having a pub. And they said, "Yeah, it's not far. It's about twenty minutes on the scooter." And I'm thinking, well, "How far away is this bloody party? You know, it's, <laughs> it's the other side of town. It wasn't as oh, if yeah. it's someone's house around the corner." You know, <laughs> they also thought it was um, his, his dad had stayed up for over an hour for him coming up. Yeah, and it was still before midnight. He was getting up. Yeah, yeah. And I was thinking, oh, it must be you know. Perhaps, normally go to bed about the same time as you do. Very you know? old. Perhaps his dad's a postman. I don't know. We never find out where his dad. Oh no, hang on. What did his dad do? He got on a bike, didn't he? He went off somewhere. Yeah. I, can't, I can't remember what he. Well, it doesn't actually but, say, does it? Michael Elfit was only a couple. It was only several years older than uh, what Phil Daniels was. So it's trying, again one of those things. Trying where you to go, work that out, actually. Yeah, because I'm thinking Phil Daniels is I don't know 18 or supposedly 18 in this movie. So that's going to mean his father 
is going to be late 30s, early 40s. And I'm thinking, where was Michael Elphick in this then? Because it was, it, it just, it wasn't quite ringing true. This must be one of his first movies, Michael Elphick. Well, it don't ring true anyway, Michael Elphick having us having children at all. But um, <laughs> <laughs> wasn't his preferred option. But, um, but yeah, the, the there's you know little things we know from looking at as you say, you look and you go, oh, there's Michael Elphick there, and um, let's talk about go, the oh, cast. Come on, let's let's have a let's have a yeah, because this is a. <clears throat> We say this, this comes up so often, we go, oh, it's a cast to die for. It's a cast of a thousand stars. All right, we've we had a few examples where we've gone through some old British comedies and there are comedic legends of the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, and it's like, oh, my God, that's an incredible cast. This is a fine example of a cast of pretty much actors at the beginning of their career. Yeah. And it's like, well, we saw them previously in this. No, it'll be like, they will go on to appear in so and so. So Phil yeah. Daniels, I mean, the, the legend is that you know the cheeky Cockney chappy that went on to become more famous as the voice of Park Life. But originally, he wasn't. He was cast as one of the other characters, I believe, because I, I know that um, they moved him into that because originally they had um, Johnny Rotten, John Lydon, um, what to play this to role play, to be playing Jimmy. Wow, I didn't um, know that. Okay, and. I'm trying to remember the reason why he, he, they did screen tests and stuff, and they were happy to ha- have him with the actual director and stuff. But there was some reason why there was an objection from within the, the you know the, the film company that was um, paying for everything. For some reason, they they objected to him. Uh, maybe they thought he just was an insurance nightmare. Just about to say, or something. Yeah. I don't know, but <laughs> um, I wouldn't turn up. He did to do two days, and then he. He disappeared like he did with the jungle thing um, yeah. that he did. Um, so, so yeah, but Phil Daniels, absolutely, yeah. I mean, he's, you know, sort of archetypal Cockney, um, and that's what, you know, professional Cockney became, didn't he, really? Exactly. I mean, it's the same as Ray Winston. I mean, Ray, Ray Winston, very, very baby-faced Ray Winston. <laughs> Is this, I can't remember when Scum came out. It's a pretty much the same sort of time. So, so Ray Winston, or Raymond Winston, as he's listed in the credits, Early, early, early role for him here. Developed I think in, Scum was just before. I think it's before. I think Scum might have been before. I, I'm thinking that, but I'm just wondering. I'm wondering whether one was one was filmed first, but then released afterwards. Let's have a little look. Um, because obviously, Scum was based on the on the BBC play, wasn't it? Before mm. it became the the movie. Ray Winston's filmography is massive at the moment, right? Scum seventy nine that came out, so that was right. the same. He was in the TV movie of it in seventy seven. Right, there you Scum. go. Yep, yeah. Quadrophenia was his next role in seventy nine, and Scum was filmed in seventy nine as well, as well as another movie that he made called That Summer, which I don't know anything about. Very early, early part in his career. Leslie Ash, you know, became more famous as a. TV sitcom comedian, yeah, uh, marrying and footballers. And subsequently, um, for what <laughs> surgery she had, and and all accusations surrounding that, which yeah, that's you know, it's a shame, isn't it, when somebody as 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 beautiful and pretty as Leslie Ash is in this movie, and then 
I don't know. I don't really want to comment too much about that. No, well, she, she got that was all a massive thing in the papers. It was a, a misnomer in a way. She'd got some kind of um, some kind of viral infection that had actually caused damage to her. So she had the cosmetic surgery to oh, to, to undo the damage. But everybody thought she just it had been cosmetic surgery that had gone wrong. Oh. So they're all like attacking her for being incredibly vain and all this kind of stuff. And and oh, I didn't realize there was a... out of control. Yeah, it's uh... a bit weird than that, but. Um, <laughs> But yeah, the others. I mean, uh, who else we got? I mean, uh, Phil Davis, obviously, is you know Phil Davis. Yeah, Phil Davis. All sorts of things. Yeah, Phil Davis, Phil Daniels. I seem to always put them together, and I always mix well, not mix them up, but you always think, oh, yeah, they were about the same time. They were doing the same sort of things. They're appearing in the same movies. I mean, even up to recently, wasn't Phil Davis in that thing called Whitechapel? You know, the um, yeah three part yeah. thing. You know. He's, yeah, yeah, had an appearance in Sherlock as well um, at one point. Was it written by the same guy? Is it? Wasn't Whitechapel and Sherlock all there's a related cross, somewhere? Cross, yeah, there's a relation between the two. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so yeah, him and um, obviously Mark uh, Wingate went on to be a regular in the bill for many uh, years, wasn't he? He was the one that was yeah. there from the beginning, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. But again, not seen him many other things apart from that. The interesting one here is is. The appearance of Toya Wilcox and Sting, I think. Yes. Um, I'm pretty sure Toya appeared in... Did she appear in Jubilee? Derek Jarman's Jubilee. Jubilee, she did, yeah. Which would have yeah. been 77, wouldn't it? It would have been the mm. the whole, obviously, Jubilee year. And it won't be until 1980, 81, before the hits started coming along, you know, the, the chart success for Toya. Um, she's great in this place. Is it Monkey? Monkey, yeah. I mean, the... The, I think her, you know, I think this, oh, I think she's underrated. Yeah. Um, judging by the performance in this film, because mm. I think there's a lot of subtlety to when she's, you know, she's repeatedly that excitement and disappointment at, at rejection Jimmy, the, and yeah, yeah the, that rejection thing, and I think that's that's done with. You know, great performance. To be perfectly honest, I think she, you know, she shows her acting chops in that respect. And, it's done with a great uh, deal of lines, isn't it? She doesn't have a lot yeah. to say, but a lot of it no, is no. just looks and asides. And, and well, they didn't give her a lot of lines because of the lisp thing. More but, than um, likely, yeah, yeah, more than likely, actually. But not yeah. a mystery why she didn't do it. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, as I say, I think her performance in this, I think she shows her. I mean, I think the performances in general are. I don't think there's really any that stand out as being awful. But her performance, as you say, she does a lot with very little. Yeah. With regard to Sting. Now, look, I'm trying to, again, trying to work out the timelines of this. This is filmed in 78, 79. The police must have had Roxanne out by this point. That was late 70s. I'm not sure um, how... But I think it was, I think it might have been another one of these things that when he actually did the part as opposed to when it was released, they they weren't that big when he did the filming of this, but where by the time it actually came out they'd they'd become a bit more prominent. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm just trying to link it all together because Sting was a school teacher in Newcastle or something before he formed the band. So I'm trying to work out how all this links together that pretty much at the the same time he's appearing in this major british movie and then ready to sort of hit the top 10 with i'm sure roxanne was there first one here we go um they were formed in london in 1977 
Their debut album was 1978 at Landoster Moor and reached number six in the UK. So it is literally synchronised here together that the year before they'd formed the band, uh, the recording contract was was formed in 77 and the first album came out 77, 78. I don't know. He must have been... It sort of mirrors mirrors his um, character here. He was one of the faces that must have been recognised by the casting crew and thought, you know, that's an interesting looking guy in that band. I think... I think there was a deliberate intention. I mean, this is maybe getting onto some of a bit of the the discussion, slightly going off from the um, performers. Yeah. But I think there was a deliberate intention of casting some people that were from the, um, you know, the sort of punk, post-punk yeah. era, because it was very much emphasis. There's very much emphasis within the actual storyline that you know not all mods were going and rockers were going around beating each other up. Some of it was just a style thing, and they didn't you know get into that. But there was very much the hooligan attitude, the yeah. anti-establishment element of it all, that sort of tribalism. It was very much tra- sort of selling it as being the punk of its day, um, in order to try and tie in to the youth movement of the time because it was the tail end of the the 70s when um, particularly in the UK punk was um, had just reached its peak yeah and I think they've deliberately cast some people who they could take from and co-opt from that movement to give it a bit more um, credibility yeah um, and I think that that was a deliberate attempt and I mean no no knocking of Toya Wilcox or, or Sting in this I mean again Sting didn't have a lot of lot to do in there but um Put some very th- very marvelous dancing. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, and and carrying some baggage out. <laughs> yeah. um, but I think that overall, and I think that that's where it's come from. They've they've co-opted them, and they've done you know good performances. You can expect it. Otherwise, they could have co-opted some other people into it who um, maybe you know you could have got like um, I don't know. Rat scabies in or something like that coming yeah. come in who who just like being incredibly clunky and just spoil it. But they've got some people in who actually could do the job as well as were part of the scene at the time of the end, end of the seventies. So I think there's been a deliberate thing to co-opt and emphasise that um, disillusionment and um, anti-establishment element to tie into the youth of the day. So yeah. that probably explains why they're both there, Toya and and, and Gordon. Yeah, I've just spotted another little link to what we were saying earlier, actually, thinking about it. Um, we said about Ray Winston appearing in like the BBC Play for Today of, of Scum, and, and a lot of these guys probably would have done a lot of TV acting before this. Sting appeared in the original TV play version of Brimstone and Treacle, didn't he, before it went on? To, or was he in the movie version? He was the movie version, wasn't he? Um, struggling to remember yeah he was in the movie version because I'll tell you what happened he released um, there was a single he released a solo single that was on the soundtrack of the album uh, soundtrack of the movie it was Denim Elliott um, was in both versions but I think Sting went on to appear in the movie version of the play for today which was was it Dennis Potter wasn't it Brimstone and Treacle so yes yeah yeah yeah. yeah. anyway 
digressing once again. So yeah, the, the you know the, the people that are in the cast. I mean, you know, you've you've even got some background characters. You've got the guy who went on to play like Nick Cotton out of the. He's there. Um, yes. Yeah, and <laughs> and the the guy, um, the leader of the 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 gang of rockers that um, beats Chalky up um, when his bike stalls yeah. and they leave him behind. Um, the leader of, of that is. He was in Alvarez's impact. He's the one that that actually died in real life. I can't remember his name. Oh, um, really? Is that him? The, yeah, he was the little cockney guy with the black the black mullet. Yeah, yeah. Can't think of his name. So that, yeah, so that was that was him. I spotted. Um, um, I spotted. So just, ra- mm, sorry, mate. I was just going. I spotted razors from Long Good Friday behind the bar in the pub. Yeah, I mean this is this is it. It's just littered with people <laughs> who you're going. Oh, I recognise him from something. Yeah. I mean, I know we've done that previously with the fifties and sixties films, um, but this is a bit more contemporary for us. This was people who we saw subsequently actually come to the fore, rather than going, "Oh, I've also seen them in something from the past." Yeah. Um, this this for us was contemporary, which it won't be for everybody listening to this, but um, yeah, it was it it was quite quite weird just seeing the faces and some of them. You're looking at them and you're thinking. Blimey, is that you looking so baby faced? Um, but the performance old- wise, there was nobody. There was nobody I felt was was clunky in their performances, and as far as how they um, how they performed, so I, I must you know credit them all in that respect. Nobody standing out as just ruining it. One of the best performances, I think. I mean, it just I just chuckled watching her. Was Kate Williams playing his mum? Oh yeah, Kate Williams. I remember her as Jack Smithers' wife in Love Thy Neighbour in the early yes, 70s. Yes, yeah, that was, that was one of the famous things. Yeah. yeah. But the whole thing where he comes home from Brighton and she's on the doorstep, you're no son of mine, always oh, these drugs and blah, blah. Perfect angry mother yeah. lashing out at a teenager. She just done that superbly. I thought she was fantastic in this. Um, and again, I think she was more... I don't think she appeared in carry-ons or anything like that, but she was more sitcom and things like that, wasn't she, I think, Kate Williams? She was always somewhere on the TV in a comedy series, like probably appearing on a Dick Emery show or something. Or oh, something yeah, she, yeah, Ken, uh, uh, you know, she was never the sort of leading role in anything, really. She was always playing the supporting characters and would pop up one episode in this and one episode in that, but yeah. absolutely, that showed her ability, that one scene, if nothing else, where she's absolutely the the screeching banshee um, <laughs> mother on the doorstep. Yeah, um, absolutely. Here we go. She she had a recurring role in Birds of a Feather as Auntie Vera, which I never really watched. Um, no. EastEnders, which a lot of these guys in you know we, we've already mentioned appear in EastEnders at some point or ever in future Professional careers. Companies, yeah. yeah. Um, her most recent appearance is called The Midwife, as is most jobbing you know british actor now you know will appear him call the midwife at some point or other it's like every scottish actor has to have appeared in taggart at some point <laughs> yeah except david tennant for some reason they won't, won't take uh, him is taggart still going uh, well, obviously obviously without you know mark mcmanus but i know it was going yeah. up till quite recently wasn't it yeah i won't be able to say no but, uh, no Answers on a postcard. Um, yeah, maybe they ran out of murders. Um, <laughs> yeah, Glasgow can only handle so much. Unlike Midsummer, which is the most dangerous place on the planet. Bloody is, isn't it? You know, it's, there's more murders <laughs> per square mile there than there is in in Caracas or Mexico City or 
downtown. <laughs> yeah, the Bronx. Yeah, just... <laughs> the most dangerous place on earth. Yeah. So why do we like this? This is a combination of everything, isn't it? Is it? It's it's a time that I think you and I would both have loved to have been part of. Like I could see me and you riding scooters and wearing bikes oh, yeah. and doing yeah. all this. You know, the coffee bars, the mu- the music particularly, you know, massive Who, Who fan. Quadrophenia, funnily enough, is one of the Who albums I don't listen to. I, I really don't. I don't know why. I'd, I'd, I'd always choose Tommy over Quadrophenia. I listen to it selectively. I think because um, Tommy has more of the element that um, I think it's going f- for individual hits or, or sort of individualized stories within each segment of the the, the song yeah uh, songs that are on the album whereas i think much more with quadrophenia they they need to be listened to in an entirety to fully appreciate them uh, um, yeah, so with that, tommy yeah. you can listen to, to pinball wizard or or you know Set um, pieces, aren't they? It's, yeah. It's, Whereas it's an entirety thing. I think with Quadrophenia, it's best appreciated. I mean, I, there are a few bits I have as as um, sort of singular songs on my sort of best of the who on my phone sort of thing. But no, the majority well, yeah. of it, it's mm. yeah, five fifteen, yeah. Um, but the majority of it, it, it is part of an ensemble listen, really, yeah. and that's not something. You always have time to do, particularly with shuffling music on your phone, or if you're just putting something on at random from your from your computer or whatever. You don't necessarily listen to a whole album in that way, start yeah. to finish. And I think that's what it needs, Quadrophenia, to actually be appreciated. So I think that's maybe why you're you're not as it's not one you listen to so much, and obviously, if you don't own it, that's another reason. <laughs> no, no, I've got it. I've got it. It's part of the collection. But I, you know, being the massive '60s fan, I'll go back and listen to the more of the '60s stuff. Yeah, but I, I don't know. I've always gravitated more towards Tommy than than Quadrophenia out of the movies, and also this is generating a lot of ideas for future broadcasts, mate. Because we've got McVicker as well as Scum and things yeah. like that from this era. Uh, yeah. Tommy itself. There's there's a few films that Jubilee as well Jubilee again yeah and I'm thinking I didn't even think of things like this you know so oh, they're all on all on lists that I've got down here all all of those that you yeah. mentioned they're all on the list I've I've been steadily compiling and thinking I won't keep sending them to you because otherwise it's a it's a dozen every day no um, no no they'll just keep them to yourself mate yeah. and surprise me but it's also it's a fascinating part not only of looking at um, a piece of history that we sadly weren't part of but we were part of film watching at this time the late 70s and it's a great little um, time before film four comes into yes into fruition this would have been very much a film four thing it would have been a film four would have made this if they'd been around at the time but this is sort of like this time we've got the creation of handmade films and you know we're going to get life of brian and we previously just had sort of holy grail and things there but it's, it's gradually moving into like, you know, the British can actually make a movie. You know, we hadn't made, or it was perceived that we hadn't made decent movies for 10, 15 years. But then all of a sudden you've got these bright young directors and filmmakers like Frank Rodham, who was a documentarian, I think he was known for on TV. And, and within a few years, we're going to get Long Good Friday. You're going to get Mona Lisa. You're going to get all of these ones that we always say. That was a that is a classic era. We said this before, didn't we? That late seventies, early eighties 
there's a whole mine of 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 classic movies that we can dip into. There's a massive amount of great films from the seventies, and I know Stinking Paws as it, it used to be the repository. It used to be, you know, every other film was a seventies. It was for a while, and, and, yeah, quite, and yeah. quite rightly. I mean, there's some fantastic films from the seventies, mm. but rarely were they ones that were British. Yes, true. And and now there was that, there was that gap. Um, there was, I think, a perception that. Um, Maybe British filmmaking had, had died with the 60s. Yeah. Um, and, you know, okay, there was the Hammer and there was the um, James Bond, but James Bond became a bit more taken up by the Americans, I think, rather than it being British in yeah. some respects. But Hammer was there, but that wasn't seen as the greatest quality filmmaking. And, and, and that was, that was dying. Carry-ons were yeah. dying out as yeah. well at that stage. Yeah. So. And, and this, I think, is, is the beginning of a revival because there's a new generation of filmmakers that that weren't your, your carry-on directors that were chucking out the same formula every single movie or the Hammer directors that were like, okay, if we can get Christopher Lee, we can do another Dracula movie, so what should we do? I know, we'll set it in 1972 just to put a new twist on it. You know, it, They were running out of ideas and it, there was just this whole perception that British movie making had, had become very tired or very predictable and you needed something like this or Scum or McVicar and you needed people like Dennis Potter who was yes. mainly working on TV and Mike Lee who was also, you know, doing all their TV stuff and it would take yeah. a couple of years before they'd do some movie adaptations of some of their stuff and it's just this whole new this whole new world of, of British movie making suddenly appears and this is the, you know, sort of round about the birth of it, I think. And I think that, yeah, the, the thing is, I think there were... They moved away from the, the the hammer and the carry-ons and um, some of the other things that were done around that time. I mean, particularly since the you know descended into a lot of the um, confessions of a window cleaner and that, that kind of. Mm. Um, there was there was this return. It was people who were coming from a different angle with the the filmmaking and how they where they come from. They were going for deciding that right. Well. The way in which some of the, the stuff with Scorsese and things, I think they've been telling stories about sort of street life and, and real life of, of people living over in the States. And I think they picked up on a little bit on that. But I think it was that if we're going to do a British film, it would be about British people in Britain and, and their lives rather than some um, something about vampires or some sex comedy or whatever. They thought they were, they were going to really go for it. And tell a, a, a you know a true a true Brit and true Brit yeah. story. Brilliant. Um, and you know this is this is where it came from. I mean this this has got okay. Like we said, it's got the the tie into the punk movement of the of the time. But it's the the classic tale of the disaffected youth um, rebelling against you know the 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 normalcy of the ninety five and. Picking up, you know, because of the new tribalism that come out through punk and stuff. Yeah, this was this was tied into that as well, and and how teenagers and and youths had taken into themselves that they were going to find an escape from the humdrum day to day life of you know there was expectations of their their parents' generation. They were going to um, have that escape, and there was various elements of it that were going to be key to that escape 
Um, but they all unravel for Jimmy in this film. They all unravel Grant one by one. Yeah. The perception of the divide between mods and rockers is broken down by, you know, one of his you know good school friends mm. turning out to be a rocker and then him accidentally beating him up. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and the you know you've got the the element of the people they see as being the the faces, quite literally the face. Um, that unravels as well, seeing that they're just as much a, a part of the, the system and normal life as as um, as everybody else is. The whole drugs element, seeing that that's, that doesn't actually provide an escape in reality, it, it actually makes things worse for him and sends him into a spiral. The whole love life thing, where he's you know, so the classic situation of being of him having. Um, that unrequited love with somebody and also somebody having unrequited love with him. With yeah. His, you know, and that parallel of he's not, he's not being paid attention to like he should, or he feels he should be. And similarly, that's how he's treating somebody else. It all unravels the elements one by one that he's, he's relying upon as a character, that's... as a scape. And yeah. even to the extent where the, you know, the scooter, goes um <laughs> that was a funny scene actually i'm sorry yeah. <laughs> where the uh, the postman kills his scooter you, th- yeah. that's one of the things i've picked up on this viewing how he gradually loses all you know his crutches in life for want of a better want of a better expression that you know he gets kicked out by his family he loses the girlfriend he loses his you know his whole mod thing you know that the whole part of being a gang, the, his best mate, his Dave best mate, goes off you with know, the girl. you know, yeah. everything that he's relied on has gradually been sort of taken away over the course of the movie. And for the first time, and I'd never even considered this in in the you know the thirty forty years that I've been aware of this film, and the you know several times that I've watched it, the actual title Quadrophenia, never even thought what it meant. Okay. And there's there's a scene where Michael Elphick says that you're schizophrenic, you've got a split personality, your uncle so and so was like it, you know, tried to kill himself, blah blah blah. And ended up only doing it by accident. Yeah, falling down a well. Yeah. And then you think quadrophenia, <laughs> yeah, and you think quadrophenia. And I just saw this just looking through some bits and pieces here, and it comes up at the beginning of the documentary on the Blu-ray, on the Blu-ray, quadrophenia, four personalities. Right? Are you aware of this? Yeah, yeah. Right. Oh, you're yeah. sorry. I'm, 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 no, 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 no. You, you, you tell it for the. Yeah. Well, the quadru- quadrophenia, four personalities, and I didn't know this at all. And I've listened to the album. I've got the album, but but Jimmy himself, his persona, his his personality is based on the four personas of the four members of the Who. Is that correct? Yes. That's, what that's meant. That's that's meant. That's kind of. Um, What's been what's been given to it the sort of the the accentuated characteristics of the four members, and then there there was also a thing where they were trying to tie it into being um, that he he lived four different lives. Um, yeah. He had the home life, he had the work life, and he had um, how he was you know when he was um, sort of out with his mates and been been this this character and then there was these the real him which was the the one that was um incredibly broken up about the whole love life thing and and sort of crying on you know looking over the cliffs and and such and there's that kind of divide 
as well that's that's also been spoken of as part of, part of the quadrophenia in playing playing four different parts within his mm. life. There you go. Can I just read this out? There's a there's a thing here I've just found. He has four different personalities, hence quadrophenia. Each is based on a member of the Who. He's the tough guy and a helpless dancer. That's Roger Daltrey. Yeah. He's a romantic. That was John Entwistle. Yeah. He's a bloody lunatic. Who would that be? <laughs> <laughs> Keith Moon. Keith yeah. And he's a beggar and a hypocrite, which is Pete Townsend. That has just opened up for me an opportunity for me to go back and watch this movie and go, right, I'm now going to go and look at these four aspects of his character. I, I hadn't, it was something that I hadn't even thought of what the title meant. Never even crossed Is my mind. Never, no, because I, I, you know, very early on, I think it was um, when the internet first became a, a thing, because obviously we're old enough to remember when it wasn't. Which yeah. Is, no. yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I remember, you know, you had search engines. You look up, you think, but you could look up anything in the entire world and yes. get an answer. Uh, now we know that, you know, most of the things you read on the internet you can't trust. Yep. But um, that was one of, you know, as early in that stage, I think within the first few months of me having an internet search engine and going, well, is quadrophenia actually a diagnosed condition as a, you know, yeah. in, as a shoot offshoot of schizophrenia? And the only mentions to quadrophenia were actually about the film. So I was thinking, oh, so they've, they've created this word, yeah. but obviously ties in with schizophrenia. And I was trying to work out that that stage, what it could mean. And um, the four members of the Who thing came up. Mm. And then also this this alternative theory, which I, well, I suppose it's alternative theory. It's more an, an embellishment on that theory that the, the parts he plays in his life um, – actually correspond to the four members of the who interesting this has just put it on a completely different level this movie for me now because i i just thought this was a a marvelous sort of historical piece that showed the, the whole mod culture which i loved which shows the 60s the youth uh, family struggles coming-of-age drama, all that stuff that we've said a hundred times before about a hundred different movies. It's just raised this up a little bit now. And I'll tell you what I'm also liking about this period of, of British movies, which, sort of going back to what we were talking before, the angry young men of this period, these 60s, you know, your, your Roger Daltrys and your musicians, by yeah. the late 70s have matured into not quite so angry young men. But they've got this opportunity because they've got a bit of money behind them to actually start telling stories and making movies that they want people to see or they feel that they want made themselves because wasn't it Life of Brian was famously funded by Pink Floyd and Genesis um, and, Harrison and, Ro well. and George, George Harrison, Harrison and all that. Like they put £20,000 in each, didn't they, I think, to fund Life of Brian. Yeah. So these guys that were the edgy, angry young men of the, of the music scene 15 years previously are thinking yeah I'd, I'd like to see that movie I'd like to see this story being told and I think well, what's again, that that's yeah. that who line um, that's um, we were we were the first band to vomit in the bar and find the distance to the stage too far <laughs> yes. um, you know sort of their their punk credentials you know before punk yeah um, you know em the emphasis on there yeah um, yeah, yeah. Jimi Hendrix wasn't the first one to destroy a guitar, mate. You know, it was... <laughs> yeah. So, but um, Keith Moon died during 
during the production of this film, I believe, if I've got my dates right. I was going to um, say must have been about here at this point, wasn't mm-hmm. it? Because he's not mentioned on the credits. The others are. There is, there's the executive producers he's mentioned in that. Oh, he is. Oh, the, right. Then there's another list of um, musical directors or something like that, and it's on the other three. Yeah. So yeah. I, obviously the, the stage at which he died was obviously the, you know, made the difference. Yes, sadly, um, he was he was gone. Um, but uh, this this does very much, you know, it's, it, it's not just a film that is about an era the band was very influential in and then maybe actually putting money into a film to then say to people, look how important we were back mm. then. It's not it, it's it's not done in that respect. It's done with a lot more of a view towards sort of talking about youth culture and their own experience and how that's uh, something that's repeated. I don't think it was self-aggrandizing because otherwise they might have put more of themselves in it other than other than them appearing on the TV once and then a picture of Pete Townsend on the bedroom wall. Yes. The, the Who don't make a, a massive appearance. I mean, they're not that, you know, when they're in the ballroom, it's not the Who playing. There's, and um, when they're in the house party, um, it's Motown that's playing. Um, when he's singing in the bath, he's singing the Kinks, not the Who. That's true. Yeah, that's true. It's... So this isn't this isn't a vehicle for them to promote themselves, really. No, um, but, which but I, which do, you know it could be incredibly crass if they had done it that way, but it's not. The fingerprints are all over this movie, though. Definitely. Yeah, of course it has to be because the soundtrack is there. You know, I'm going to ask a very simple, uh, very simple, a very stupid question. Would you recommend this to anybody? <laughs> well, as it happens, uh, yeah, I think if if people are going into it with the right view, absolutely, I'd recommend it. And I mean, it's something that sadly I've never had the opportunity to see on the big screen. Oh right, okay. Uh, that's that's something that you know I'd like to do, but it's it's never come about. We screened uh, it at Rochester Kino two years ago. Yes, is it? You see, I mean, there's many a occasion when I wish I was closer to Rochester. <laughs> um, that's you know yeah. it's not often people say that kind of thing but, <laughs> um, but yeah there's been a number of films that Rochester, Rochester Kino have, have shown and, and this is one of the ones that I was aware of being on but could, you know there's no way I could get there and um, see yeah. it but um, yes I, I mean the, as I always say there are some people that just wouldn't appeal to it because it's not their kind of thing but everybody else go into it with the view that it, it isn't just a simplistic storytelling of rebellious youth and um, disenchantment. There's more to it. Um, there are layers to it, and I think that's probably probably why not just me picking it up at the right time in my life and staying with it and not having that um, retrospective affection because of me, you know, having seen it at that point. I think the fact that there are layers to it is what's kept me being able to go back to it like once a year for the the last. Well, I don't know. 25 years That's incredible yeah I'm, I'm, as soon as you said you'd seen it 30 or 40 times i thought i think this man likes this film somewhat <laughs> well, yeah. one thing i think may happen with the 40th anniversary coming up next year oh yeah yeah you, we may get some big screen screenings so well, if we do, i'm going to try and try and get to it and if yeah. i can get to it down down your way and see it with you it'd be even better would well, you know what the bfi will probably show it down on the south bank um prince charles cinema will 
no doubt. They show that quite regularly down here, actually, the Prince Charles Cinema at Leicester Square. Um, yeah, we can try and tie in a, a, a meet-up, mate. That would be fantastic if that could Actually, happen. Yeah. Um, personally, myself, I mean, I I sat and rated this for Letterboxd after watching it last night. And and as I said, it's a film I like, but it's not a film that I love to the extent that you do, which is which is bizarre because it's got all the elements of, of what I like. You know, it's got 60s music and, and culture and just that whole history and the nostalgia, and it's a great story well told. But I only gave it four stars. But then looking into this whole quadrophenia thing itself and how complex... Phil Daniels' character actually is with these four personalities. I'm going to watch it again very, very soon, and I'm, I'm, I'm sort of going to elevate my rating up by at least another half a star here because I'm thinking, yeah, there is more to this than just being a snapshot of 60s teen life. Well, it's good to hear you say that because, um, you know, obviously, yes, I do have a liking for it. <laughs> yeah. um, and I, already I've been. You know, it's pleasant for me to hear that what you'd said that you'd actually reappraised it on your watch last night and yeah. actually come out of it thinking, oh, this was actually, there was more to this and, than I'd originally recalled from the previous watches of it. So yeah. the fact that you're going to do another appraisal of it, um, which you think, you know, we'll, we'll bump it high up now you've got some more oh, yeah. knowledge of it, um, even better from, from my perspective because i do think it's a film that um deserves more respect than it i think it has mm. well, it's a well-loved film i know there's a lot of people yeah out there it's that... quite culty though yeah than, yeah um, and it's not you know it's not perfect it has you know it's you know it suffers from some of the technical um deficiencies of the time and the budget um in that respect uh but i think some of that where some of the audio is a little bit off here and there and, and things like that. I think that just adds to it because it does. It's, you know, of its time, isn't it? You know, yeah. the technology that was available is, is there, you know, it's, it's not going to be a massive, great CGI fest of special effects and things like that. But you know, in, in, in a nightclub, you're going to have to ADR the, the, the dubbing of the vocals afterwards, aren't you? You know, you're going to have, people aren't going to be able to have a conversation while there's a band playing in the corner of a room. So obviously the sound's going to sound a little bit false in that respect. But this does, but, but this does that kind of thing with you know the house party and particularly the like in the ballroom when there's the the sort of uh, for want of a better phrase disco um, yeah. going on. There's you know there's music being played and there's okay they've ADR'd they will have ADR'd the the vocals. But yeah. you look around and normally now when you see on television or films and people who are in nightclubs. You can see everybody perfectly well, whereas we know that you go into a nightclub in reality and you can't see your hand in front of your face. In 1964, it would have been filled with smoke as well. Yeah. People smoking and this, cigarettes. This and got it. I mean, the, the fact that, you know, a lot of the, you could see there was loads of people there crammed in in a sweaty heap, but yeah. hardly any of them you could actually make out whether they were male or female, never yeah. mind anything else. And, and that's the reality of it. And they actually captured that rather than doing the, oh, we must be able to show everybody we've got dressed up because we paid for them to get them dressed up. Um, I've been to a thousand house parties exactly as depicted in this movie before as a teenager. House parties were exactly like that, even in the 80s. Yeah. Just one final point. I, I'm, I sort of teased this when you said you were going to bring this to today's episode. The band that's playing at the beginning, when they go into the, the very small club, at the very beginning, beginning, there's a band. Yes, yeah. It's a band called Cross Section. 
the drummer Dean is my friend's brother and, oh, wow. and lived on the street that I grew up. He lived about 20 doors down from me and cross section were one of 70 bands that Daltrey interviewed and auditioned to just for that one, one role, that one scene. Uh, yeah. And I think he called them up to, to Camden or somewhere and, and just auditioned them and they got the gig. Dean now lives in Norway, I think. Uh, the rest of the band, I think they reformed about five years ago for this just special one-off, you know, um, concert or gig in celebration of Quadrophenia. But yeah, that that's my my name drop. You, you got Ken Loach, I've got Dean. Yeah, from yeah. Cross well, I think they're on a similar level, to be fair. <laughs> but yeah, um, but you can't actually really see him, which is unfortunate. But I remember back in you know prior to this coming out, or just as it had come out. His his brother and his sister had said to me, "Oh, Dean's in Quadrophenia, the Who movie that's coming out. He's he's the band in the background." I'm like, "Oh wow, you know." Didn't really think much about it until I watched it ten, fifteen years later for the first time, you know. But I know they're listed in the in the, the credits. And they are listed yeah. as cross sections, so yeah. given given that not at least, but yeah, um, how cool is that? Yeah, personal links to to films, hey? Yeah. Okay, Quadrophenia. Let's take a short break. We'll be back with it's my choice for next time. It is. Okay, Stephen, next time is going to be my choice, and we're going to go back. It's 1950, and for this particular section selection, we're going to see our first appearance, surprisingly, for Dirk Bogart. Oh, good. Yeah, major, major British star. And in, in these first 20 episodes or so of Real Britannia, we haven't come across him as yet, but it will also bring into the Hall of Fame the director, Basil Dearden. Now, Basil Dearden, we've reviewed previously, The Man Who Haunted Himself and League of Gentlemen. This one goes before both of those, back to 1950, as I say. It's a classic, in my opinion, of of, of 50s British movies. It's The Blue Lamp. Yes. You know it? Yeah. I'm trying to remember if I've watched it in its entirety. Mm. Um, I hadn't until last week, um, and there's a marvellous Blu-ray copy of it out there now. And I remember watching parts of it, and I sat and watched it in its entirety about a week ago. And it's, it's probably famous for the introduction of um, Dixon of Doc Green, isn't it? Jack Warden's in this as yeah. the copper. Yeah, so yeah, that, yeah. That's what most people remember it, that, that um, PC Dixon appears in this for the first time before the TV series. I think you're going to like it. If you haven't seen it all the way through, we, we're going to have a lot to talk about in this. I love it. I absolutely loved it. And I want to watch it again. That's why I want to want to talk about it with you because I'm thinking I enjoyed it so much. Yeah, I can, as I say, I can see myself enjoying it, even even just looking at the cast list and the the, uh, the synopsis. So, yeah, um, I'm just trying so to... yeah, I'll look forward to that one. Yeah. Not as many famous faces. Dora Bryan's in it. Bernard Lee. That might put Bernard Lee into the Hall of Fame. I'm not too sure, but M from 
uh, James yes. Bond, you know. Let's see how we go. Let's see how we go. I'm, I'm looking forward to that one. Yeah, that'd be great. Okay, Stephen, thank you once again, sir, for, well, for, for this time, for actually opening my eyes to a film that I thought I, I was quite familiar with and a, a, a film that I just sort of accepted. I've now, you know, got a, a movie that I'm going to go back to and look at in a different way, which is part of the reason we, we sort of critique these films and, and select them for each other, isn't it? Just to try and examine it, stuff it that's under the surface. I mean, I think that we, you know, we're, it's nice to surprise each other. It's nice to sort of share the, the workload of thinking about which is going to be the next appropriate film. But, I mean, mm. a lot of this is our hopes that we will introduce new films to the audience or get them to reappraise things they thought the audience knew. Yeah. But to actually be able to do that for each other, which, you know, done with um, done with films you've already um, suggested in the past, and, and thankfully I've got one in, in this case, um, mm. that's just... Um, hitting it absolutely perfect with what we want to actually achieve um, with our our limited aspirations of the, the podcast, <laughs> um, what we want to achieve, which is to, to get people to appreciate the films that might not already appreciate enough. Yeah, that's it. Perfect. Absolutely perfect viewing. So looking forward to that next time. Once again, thank you for being here today, sir. My pleasure. I'll see you very soon. Bye-bye. Take care. Good luck. Thank you. Hand up, sir.